Hello and welcome to the EdSearch Podcast. Every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. This summer, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that colleges can no longer consider race as a factor when they decide which applicants to let in. That landmark ruling, it means a sudden end to a practice used at most selective colleges, and one that college leaders argue is key to bringing in a diverse mix of students. That decision has sent aftershocks throughout the education world. So far, the biggest side effect has been a renewed focus on a different aspect of college admissions, so-called legacy admissions policies. These long-standing legacy practices mean colleges give preference to the children of alumni and often the kids of large donors. On this week's EdSurge podcast, we talked to two experts who have been looking into this issue for a while from different perspectives. I connected with both of these folks because ever since the recent Supreme Court decision, I have been wondering, where did legacy admissions come from? Why haven't we heard more about it in recent years until this decision? And how does this fit into broader conversations about how college admissions is changing? The first of these two folks I reached out to was Richard Kallenberg, a non-resident scholar at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. A colleague recommended him to me because back in 2010, he edited a whole book about legacy admissions called Affirmative Action for the Rich. Kallenberg is against legacy admissions as a practice he considers unfair. They're giving an advantage to people who already have lots of advantages in life, and yet they now seem especially unfair given that the Supreme Court has disallowed the use of race in admissions. And Kallenberg told me a pretty interesting story about when he was researching his book more than a decade ago and trying to get others to join him in making a more public uproar against these legacy admissions practices. But back then, things did not go as he had expected. I tried to get civil rights groups involved in the issue because uh, clearly legacy preferences tend to benefit wealthy white people, and I thought it would be uh, in their interest something where I could work with civil rights groups. But uh, they were hesitant uh, because Universities were using affirmative action based on race at that point, and uh, there, there's kind of a symbiotic relationship between preferences for legacies and preferences uh, for underrepresented minority students. And so the, the civil rights folks liked the idea that legacy preferences were there to the extent that they could make an argument that Listen, there are all sorts of preferences in college admissions, legacy, race, they're, they're, um, you know, they, there's nothing special about, about race and that it's unfair to attack uh, the use of race. And, uh, and so they were, they were allied with universities. That is just to underline, you're saying that in a way, because of it helped them rhetorically, groups that actually oppose the actual legacy admissions or sort of sort of looking the other way in a, in a sense to help make their case for the policies that would consider race and admissions. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and you see it, you know, in, in, the, in the oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court on affirmative action, uh, the liberal justices raised the issue of legacy preferences because 
it is indeed unfair to, to give legacy preference when you're not going to count race in admissions. Uh, and so, uh, but, you know, at the same time, I thought it was unfortunate that there had been kind of this unholy alliance between uh, those who uh, normally would have would oppose legacy preferences, people who are represented, represented un, underrepresented groups and, uh, and people of color and, and universities. Um, so uh, to my mind, this is, uh, you know, one of the examples of the way in which race-based affirmative action, while very, very well-intentioned, uh, in fact, kind of provided cover for a whole host of uh, unfair preferences for, for wealthier white people. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And so you, it, it, until now, it, it had sort of been this kind of equilibrium or stalemate legacy admissions. That's right. So you didn't have the groups that you would normally think of as um, really fighting against legacy preferences doing so because there was affirmative action to, to balance it out. Uh, and now that situation has changed, and I'm really happy that that civil rights groups are are stepping up and challenging the use of legacies, uh, legacy preferences in college admissions. Just last week, the U.S. Department of Education opened a civil rights inquiry into Harvard University's use of legacy programs. That was after three Boston area groups filed a complaint charging that the process appeared especially unfair now that the consideration of race has been barred. It was Harvard, along with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, that were at the center of that recent Supreme Court case about affirmative action at colleges. And a few universities announced in July that they were going to end their legacy programs, including Carnegie Mellon University, Occidental College, University of Minnesota, University of Missouri System, and Wesleyan. The question now is whether a groundswell of other colleges will opt out as well or if they might even be compelled to. I asked Kallenberg, what is the argument that colleges make when they defend their legacy admissions programs? What defenders of legacy preference will claim uh, is that legacy preferences are good for everyone because they uh, help, raise college, uh, help colleges raise uh, money and that money can be used for financial aid and lots of good things. But in, in the book uh, that I edited, Affirmative Action for the Rich, uh, there was a chapter that analyzed that empirical claim. You know, do, in fact, legacy preferences increase giving? And the economists who looked at that question compared the universities that use legacy preferences with those that don't. Uh, they found that there was no statistically significant impact of the existence of a legacy preference on, on giving. And so it was, it was always a, a weak case uh, in terms of finances. I, to be clear, I would be opposed to legacy preferences even if they did bring in more money, because I think it's wrong to discriminate based on ancestry. But uh, you know, that's, the, that's the rationale that is, is advanced but it doesn't really stand up to, to empirical uh, analysis. So where did these legacy admission programs come from? It turns out that this scholar researched that for his book as well. It's got a very dark history. 
So there were uh, quotas against Jewish students uh, in the early 20th century because uh, basically Protestant elites uh, wanted to limit the number of students who were, who were Jewish at selective colleges. And that became uh, an untenable position. You couldn't, you know, it wasn't politically acceptable, morally acceptable to have an outright quota limiting a group. Uh, so instead, universities shifted to this more subtle version of discrimination, which uh, in essence uh, accomplished the goal of limiting Jewish students by saying, well, if your parents uh, had attended, then, then we'll give you a leg up. Uh, and so, so that was the original motivation, kind of an anti-Semitic motivation. And then over time, uh, they developed the additional rationale uh, again, as I say, contested empirically, that legacy preferences increase donations. These days, selective colleges are looking for more diversity. So after this new court ruling, there's a bigger question of how colleges can do that when they can no longer use race as a factor in admissions decisions. One person thinking about that is Cheryl Holcomb-McCoy, dean and professor of education at American University's School of Education. She's one of many college leaders who saw this Supreme Court decision coming. In fact, back in 2018, she wrote an essay for the Heckinger Report titled, Educators Must Prepare for the Dismantling of Affirmative Action. It didn't take a lot to see all of the um, signs. Um, we knew in 2018, I think, the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education, the Trump administration um, was really... Um, you know, letting us know that if, if a case would get to the Supreme Court, that it would likely um, end affirmative action as we know it. And so I've always felt that we needed to prepare for the end of affirmative action. So, um, so that's always been in my mind. And part of me, um, although I, I feel that the policies around affirmative action are, were needed and still are needed, they still didn't do enough. So my plea really in that 2018 article was for K-12 educators, higher ed folks to start thinking more deeply about what else needs to be done to ensure that we diversify college and university campuses. Because if we look at the, if we look at elite selective universities, we're still seeing very low numbers when you think about diversity, um, you know, um, uh, black students only make up about 6%, maybe, of the population of students at Harvard and other elite universities. So the sense is, to me, has always been that we're still not doing enough. This one policy is not necessarily working um, in the way that it was envisioned. So um, in 2018, I was really trying to lay out um, you know, this argument and debate that this is likely to come and we need to prepare for it by more deeply thinking about pathways to post-secondary success um, to college campuses. And that's what that article was really all about. She argues that one thing colleges can do to improve student diversity is to remove legacy admissions policies. Yeah, well, let's be clear. Legacy admissions have been racialized 
for many, many years. And How do you mean? What, tell me more about that. That we see more white students coming to universities, a uh, large percentage are coming through legacy or um, either their parents went to the university or their parents are donors, right? So you can, this is a, um, some institutions have almost uh, 42% accept rate of their legacies. Um, and donor-related admissions compared to very low acceptance rates overall. So most of those students at many elite universities, those donor-related or um, legacy admission students are overwhelmingly white. And this is just the historical piece. I mean, because it's been fewer years, right, that um, black and brown indigenous students have had access to these institutions. So still overwhelmingly, the legacy um, admissions is very much um, uh, disproportionately white in comparison to um, the other applicants to a university. So, you know, it's hard to, it's hard, you know, I think there's some cases in the pipeline now which, which are challenging um, Harvard, for instance, on their admissions, their legacy admissions um, practices. And this falls squarely on institutions um, in their admissions policies around legacies. And legacy isn't the only area of selective college admissions being newly questioned. She says the way student athletes are given preferences is also worth a look. We are really entering this new phase of looking at college admissions in its totality, right? And um, are we privileging certain groups um, you know, within this process. And um, that's the big question. And so I, like, again, I don't think we can talk about, I don't think we can talk about race being, you know, this factor that we can no longer talk about without talking about the legacy piece. To this official, it's time to correct what she calls false narratives around how affirmative action policies have worked at colleges. Affirmative action does not mean that I'm admitting one based on race solely and you're not eligible to be a student. Race is just one of many factors if you're thinking about diversifying your student body. But the students who are admitted, who, you know, are, that are diverse, are eligible still um, and have met the criteria. I think there's been this false narrative that somehow um, non-eligible students of color are getting in and they shouldn't be there because they don't have the academic you know, half or whatever, you know, um, they shouldn't be there. And that's not true. Um, that is not true. And so we have to also uh, get rid of that myth um, that has, I think, permeated this conversation. But the question about race, and, you know, I think it was um, uh, Justice uh, Jackson um, that said, Katanji Brown Jackson, that said um, that race is still a factor in our society. It is. And we can say it's not, but that's not the truth, right? And, and just the long history of, of you know, um, oppression and discrimination that we're still trying to correct, right? The unevenness of the experiences of people. And, you know, and it hits squarely in this college access world. Um, and so we can't ignore that. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the false narratives are, are really dangerous. Um, and we have, I, that is something that I think, going back to the K-12 piece, I do think that our, this shouldn't be a conversation that we're just having in higher ed. We need to start having these conversations earlier 
with caregivers, parents, community members, students, so that they understand uh, the landscape before they even land on a campus. Say, yeah, say more about that. And we'll come back to legacy again. I really appreciate the, the broader, you know, kind of fitting that in as a, in the context. So what, what can uh, the K-12 world do? And what is it that you just mentioned, you know, like making them aware of, of, of the different kind of realities, but what, what can you be more specific? Like what is one of those things that would help a educator and, and a younger student and their family understand that they need to understand they may not understand right now about college? Yeah, and so this is, it does fit with legacies because legacies, if I'm a graduate of an institution, I can expose my child to that institution way before they get there. I mean, that happened. I, my, I went to the University of Virginia and I took my kids there a lot, you know, so they could see it. And actually my son chose not to go there, but um, he did not want to follow. <laughs> he knew about it though. Yeah. <laughs> but he knew about it. And that is what we call social capital, having an understanding that students and, you know, way before they arrive on campus, if their parents have attended an institution, they're already exposed. They know, they possibly know the people there, they know the culture, they, you know, their parents are telling them stories about their time there. They they have all this information. And they can picture themselves on, in this case, this, you know, this, this chem- campus that Jefferson designed, yeah. Right. right. But then think about first-gen students who have parents who've never stepped foot on a campus as a student and are possibly even fearful of that whole process because they've never experienced it themselves, have very little information to share with their students. So these students are going through high school not knowing anything, totally dependent possibly on the school um, their high school or their counselor giving them that information about what it's like to go to Harvard, what it's like to go to University of North Carolina, what it's like to go to, you know, Brooklyn College. That is that is such a powerful piece of the college process is, you know, understanding the culture before you even get there. And so I believe that in K-12 settings that counselors and educators need to do more to expose all students. Um, to what college is like. Um, Simple things like, you know, I I tell counselors all the time, you know, get teachers to use syllabi, right? I mean, in their high school classrooms. I mean, just getting accustomed to the culture of what college is about, Um, increasing the college trips um, that students go on and that they're going to more than just one type of school, that they can see the different types of school. I also believe that it's important for Black, Brown, and Indigenous students to have really... um, influential conversations, and I say important conversations, with um, educators about racism on campus, right? So that they're not struck when they get there that, wow, some people are going to think I'm an affirmative action person, or some people are going to think I don't belong here. Um, That is an important conversation for students to have um, early on. So can I stop you there? It's interesting because I want to press, I want to just kind of like examine that. Re- why? Because in a way, like you would think that explaining that to a, a student who might be going or considering going to a place like American or any of these highly selective colleges um, like you or I went to, um, that, you know, by telling them this might be a place that has some students who might be hostile to you, 
it might be discouraging, but you're saying it's important to. Yeah, I think out. it's more discouraging when you get there and you're not expecting it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's um, it's almost like the talk. You know, we t we have the talk with young black males about what it's like to get stopped by the police, right? We want them to be prepared for it. It doesn't stop them from driving or going out, but they need to be prepared, right? It's more hurtful, and I've heard from more students, well, I didn't think that was going to be something I was going to, that was going to happen. Um, it's really important for students to have this opportunity, and some of that starts in K-12, too. So. It might not, it, you know, it's not delayed. It could, you know, till college. We need to have students who are talking about issues of race, racism, um, you know, any type of bias. Um, we should be having those conversations even in classrooms before they get there. I know that there, I mean, that's what this, you know, we're having a debate about that now. How much can we talk about differences and issues of race and racism, our history of race, racism in this country, some would rather us not have those conversations in classrooms, but it's real um, to many of our students and for us not to have that conversation um, and of, of multiple social identities, because we have students, black students who also, you know, uh, identify as queer, identify as, you know, Christian, Muslim. I mean, there's so many different social identities. I actually think it's healthier for students to be able to have these conversations before they even come to a college campus so that when they get there, they're um, more likely to be able to navigate, um, you know, some of these difficult conversations and dynamics. It's hard to do though. It's, That's where we have to prepare <clears throat> educators to be able to broach these conversations. So what do these college experts think will happen next? Well, I think we're gonna see immediate um, possible uh, dips in enrollment as far as black and brown and indigenous students on some campuses, some campuses. Um, and others will thrive um, because I think we're gonna have, you know, leaders who are going to surface, who are going to take this seriously. And I think we're gonna see more innovation. We're gonna see more partnerships with K-12 districts. I, I think, you know, I, I think we're going to see a surge at some universities and then we're gonna see dips at others. I also think that, you know, for the first, you know, we're having counselors. I'm really excited that the group that I work with and write, you know, I write about um, school-based counselors, mental health professionals are, and the folks that are doing college counseling and advising in high schools and middle schools are meeting now to talk about how they can partner with universities to ensure that they're getting students into those universities. And so we're seeing some of this, you know, um, linking between K-12 and higher ed. And I hope we, we continue to see that continues and it becomes a part of our natural way of practicing. Um, so I do think that will happen. I hope we sustain it though. That's the, um, I think it's an immediate reaction to the Supreme Court decision. And let's just hope that it becomes um, a practice, institutionalized practice that universities and high schools are working together. Um, I do think I, I I do think that we will see some of the you know the sad part about this is that this whole conversation is scary for a lot of Black, Brown, Indigenous students and families and caregivers, and we're just going to see more students opting not to go to college. Yeah, do you, do you mean scary? Tell me what do you mean by scary? 
Well, you know, it depends on how you interpret. You know, if you're a first-gen student and you're hearing that the Supreme Court said that race is not a factor, and now you're hearing that, oh, I'm going to have to write an essay to, you know, because a lot of folks are saying, oh, during the, the essays now can be written to talk about your hardships or, you know, these adversity narratives, I would call them trauma narratives almost, that is almost re-traumatizing students. I have a real problem with that, that now the onus is on the student to tell a story that will trigger this sense that this is a student that's from a low-income background or from a, um, a, a racial uh, minority background. That shouldn't be, and that could be scary because that's more responsibility on the student it could be, um, you know, how do I do that? I don't have any support. And we still have high schools where students do not have support with essays and all of those things. They're not getting, uh, we don't have enough counselors to give that type of support. So I'm, I'm just afraid too, we'll see uh, more students just opting out and say, I'm just going to not go. I mean, we are at a point where there is a, a kind of a growing public skepticism of higher education and the value of it. So that, that it doesn't help, I suppose. No, no. The, but although when we look at the, you know, it's very clear when you see how much your salary will be the income and, you know, education level. But I do think there's been a, an intentional narrative to sort of, um, assault on higher education, too, given that higher education is perceived as being a very liberal, progressive enterprise, right, that there has been um, a, a sort of, a, you know, this has been very an, an intentional sort of uh, slight of higher education. You don't need that degree. Um, you don't need to be there, you know, to um, be indoctrinated by these liberal folks on college and university campuses. So I think this is also a part of the political nature that, you know, of education that we're seeing now. Education has always been political, but we're real, it's very overt now. And, um, and I think, again, um, understanding, you know, that all of these conversations around, you know, the value of a higher education degree, um, you know, we have legacy applications on one hand, not using race as a factor in the admissions process on another. Um, we still have very segregated high schools. Let's not forget that, that, you know, um, schools are still very segregated by race. I mean, like 75% of black and brown students go to majority black and brown schools, right? And so there's not a lot of diversity, even in some of our high schools and place matters. I mean, we can look at zip codes and still know um, with pretty high confidence um, the race of a student just based on zip code. Um, those are the things that, you know, these all these, all these conversations converge and um, it's complex, um, but we really, I think we really need leaders for the, you know, the, for the future in higher education and in K-12 that understand the complexity of this conversation and that we can work together to create uh, pathways um, to jobs, to work, to hire, to college um, access, and, um, and that students have and families have all the information they need. How optimistic are you that things like legacy admissions 
will really that that those policies might change at selective institutions. I think there's a good chance. I at one point, you know, back in the 80s, I would never have thought that SATs and ACT tests were going to go away. I used to work for the college board um, for a while there, and um, never thought that we would see as many test optional schools. Right? Um, never thought I would see that, and now we have it. I, I'm I'm optimistic that educators will do the right thing around legacy application, legacy admissions. It's not going to be easy because folks who are legacies are going to have a major problem with that. <laughs> and um, so I think it's, 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 it will happen over time. Some universities will do it. Um, and then others will possibly be slower coming to the dance. But I think we will have a real conversation within the next two years about, um, depending on these lawsuits that are coming through now, um, how institutions will follow suit. I hope it will be a time of change. Uh, and I, I believe uh, that it will be, but we don't, we don't know. And I hope we'll see much more. Uh, but it's, um, and, and we also have evidence from states where race-based affirmative action was banned by voter initiative. So in places like California um, and, uh, and also places where affirmative action, universities stopped using race at least for a time, uh, Texas, uh, University of Georgia. And, uh, and when, legacy pre when race-based preferences fell, legacy preferences soon soon after were discontinued. So there's, there's some evidence that you know, there is a connection between the two and that universities find it particularly hard to justify legacy preferences when, when they can't use race in admissions. This has been the EdSurge podcast. Every week we look at the future of learning. If you like the show, please click follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please take a minute to give us a rating or a review that helps others find the show. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing by Rebecca Koenig and music by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.